You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. So welcome back to the podcast with me, Owen Walker. In this episode, we speak with Mark Dempster. Mark is a, an addiction specialist working in Harley Street in London. And I've wanted to have this conversation for a while, actually, just around exploring the impact of addiction on both the individual and on society and the health burden it places on the NHS. But yeah, in this conversation, we explore everything around the five stages of addiction to some of the com- common cognitive pitfalls that addicts fall into and some of the treatment modalities that we can uh, that Mark uses to break addiction. So I really hope you enjoy his authentic story. He's a truly insightful individual. Uh, so please enjoy. I had addiction to, to various drugs throughout the time, including alcohol. And then eventually I got clean. And then I trained. I went to college and I trained as a therapist. And, and I'd done lots of different qualifications. So I stopped the addictions that I had, then went to rehab, came out of rehab, trained, and continued to train, and then along the way wrote a couple of books. So, um, I, yeah, so I wrote a biography and I wrote a self-help book, and now work as a Harley Street, Harley Street uh, specialist in addiction. Well, so you've really walked the walk, Mark. Actually, from 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 uh, you know being addicted to substances to 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 then be coming through that experience. Do, if you don't mind me asking, what substances or, or what addictions? Oh, yeah, you- I, everything really. Right. Okay. So no, I get no problem at all talking about it. I so I started like sort of as they always say, a sort of gateway drug, cannabis. I started with cannabis when I was quite young, when I was fifteen, and. Um, and then I, I took everything, basically uh, hallucinogenics. So I started like cannabis and then I went through, it was like textbook progression really through all the different drugs really until I got to heroin, uh, crack, well, crack, well, but it, there wasn't really crack at the time. It was freebase, but uh, cocaine and then to heroin and then became sort of chronically dependent, physically dependent and psychologically dependent on heroin and cocaine and alcohol as well. So alcohol all the way through. And of course, I was addicted to nicotine as well. But um, so, I mean, really everything. I was like a dustbin, really. When I think back in like my, you know, I work with a lot of clients that are quite um, specific around. It's like cocaine. It's like sex addiction, cocaine addiction. And they, you know, it's alcohol, they're quite manageable, they're quite, they're high functioning addicts, really, they hold down businesses and chief execs organisations, working in finance or private equities or whatever. And um, mine's, my addiction wasn't like that, but but along the way, I made a lot of money through, through criminal behaviour to do with drugs. And all that money got spent on, uh, on the addiction, really, eventually eventually yeah yeah indeed mark i just i just like to because you very much walked the walk and and, and been through your own experiential journey uh, through addiction could you just i suppose a really good place to start would be actually like the five stages of addiction because you know putting this into context and front front loading it with a, um, a few statistics which are which i'll i will do um it costs the NHS in excess of £36 billion uh, pounds a year. And, you know, the UK has been termed the addiction the addiction centre of yeah. Europe um, or was the addiction centre of Europe before we came out of Europe. Yeah, Could you just yeah. 
Yeah, so it's, it's it's a real issue. Not only not only sort of medically, but it affects everything from the psychosocial life to to, to family life to everybody's life. You, you don't need to be a healthcare professional for it to affect your life. But uh, as in, you know, dealing with with addicts, it, it it affects every. And you've got this organic story. Could you maybe walk us through the five stages of addiction? And I, I, maybe then- okay, okay. So yeah. we we start off with, of course, I mean, here, here here's the stages. It's experimentation, and then regular use, then risky use, and then. And, and then dependence and then then addiction, right? But, and what you just said uh, there about the whole, um, the cost of the NHS is, and, and, and we don't even really see the, we see the financial cost, but we don't see the psychological cost. We don't see the breakdowns in family units. The criminal justice, We they say, they used to say here, uh, 5% of the crime is committed by 95% of the population. So, so we know, and, and if you look at legal aid fees, you look at how much it costs to keep people in prisons, then we, we look at the workforce and we look at days off as a result of addiction. We also look at decisions that are made when people are under the influence, especially in financial, you know, there's a, there's a, a school of thought that think that the whole financial crisis, a lot of that was driven by cocaine and, and uh, you know, just cognitive impairments really when they're making decisions on large large funds and so so right this is how it starts it start it starts for most people that i know that have got addictions is they get introduced uh, there's usually a perfect store for addiction as well there's usually for people that become have addictive personalities there's usually early exposure to drugs and alcohol so there's, there's some stats around if you drink alcohol by the time you're 14, you're six times more likely to develop a problem than you would if you waited till you're 21. Because so, the brain obviously is forming. It doesn't stop really developing until 24 or 25, they say, but certainly to 20 years. So if you get a young person who's just ex- who, who, who's like 14, 15, coupled with adverse childhood circumstances. So if they've got any trauma, any neglect, abandonment, family, mother or father, that's another massive factor. If you've got a mother or father that's got an addictive personality or an active addict, you're four, that's something like three or four times more likely to develop addictions than you would if you had a healthy family. So if you've got early exposure, uh, peer pressure, coupled with adversity and you've got sort of the perfect storm. So most people start off the experiment. That's what I done, started off. My friends were all smoking weed uh, in the school that I was in. A bit of a crazy school, very, a lot of, a lot of, uh, it was in Glasgow, it was, it was rough. It was a rough school, uh, a lot of social deprivation amongst the, the I mean, all the, all the pupils there really, well, not all the pupils, but a, a percentage. Then uh, I start, uh, I've got curiosity about drugs. Uh, I, I start taking an interest. I start to experiment. I don't know that I've got a pre- any predisposing factors, right? So they say 50% of, you know, 50%, they've done these things called the twin studies, and they could see that children of alcoholics and addicts are 50% more likely to be. Are they, there's a 50% chance that they're going to be addicts as well, uh, or alcoholics. And so I start to experiment. I start to then get 
start to use, I say to myself, oh, this is great. I really enjoy the buzz. I'm getting the dopamine, the neuroton is, you know, I'm getting flooded in the brain. Um, you know, I, I don't realize time as a young child, really, that I've got a dopamine deficit uh, as a result of the trauma that I had from childhood. So I take to it like a duck to water and then it's regular use. Then, of course, it goes into, you cross the line, right? You start to say, so at the beginning I'm saying, okay, I'm never going to, I'm just smoking weed. I'm, not, I'm only going to smoke at the weekend. I'm never going to take hallucinogenics. I'm never going to take LSD. I would never take heroin. But all of that changes through time because I rationalize. I've got a part of me, a part of me, it's like a sub-personality that starts to give me information that's incorrect and says, oh, it's not, you know, it rationalizes and justifies why I could do other drugs. And then before I know it, I'm in the risky use and the risky behavior. And then I start to take a drug like heroin where there's a physical dependency. You get a physical dependency. But equally, it could be cocaine and I could develop a psychological dependency. Now, now as you know, well, in London, and as you talked about the capital of drug use in the whole of Europe is uh, cocaine has become so normalized within the UK in the last 10 to 15 years and the availability. And there's a lot of reasons why that is the case. But so then I'm in, I'm in dependency and then I'm in, before I know it, I'm in full blown addiction. Now that trajectory, that sort of five stages, that could happen for me, that took, say maybe five or six years to get to the addiction stage, the end stage. But I know people that jumped, a lot of people who jumped from experimentation straight really into addiction. And uh, I, I used to witness in council estates in Glasgow, you know, a lot of social deprivation. Kids that were like pre-puberty, like 14, 15 years old, they go straight into it and they'd start shooting up heroin, right? So there was no honeymoon period. There was no, like, it was like straight from, now, some of them young lads and girls would, would be like, they would have trauma. They would have neglect. And what drove some of that wanting to numb so quickly and that lack of care for self was the childhood adversity. So, yeah. Yeah, what, what I'm getting from you there, Mark, is that, like, like you said, the, the, the social environment and or social de de deprivation really lends itself from a, for, almost from a trifecta. So, like you said, you've got social deprivation, you've got potentially um, a, a, modeling, a, a modeling facet from, right. from, a, from a significant other, i.e. a parent, and or you, 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 the coercion from the group, and like you said, it, I think the worst a bit of uh, the worst facet about it is that you, the, you can be unaware that actually these are prevailing influences at that time. You, you, you're not you, you're not aware that actually there's a substantial risk from all those impinging on you. But but like you said, how how important is because I, I i'm familiar having been a paramedic for 20 years and worked with in london and dealing with the effects of, of addiction and then people seeing people who slip back into addiction 
how important is it for them to change their social environments? Because, and the reason I'm asking this question is because people who return to their social environment and their friends, friendship groups, see in my mind and my observational um, anecdotal observations is they slip back into their addiction. Is that true from your perspective? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Look, I, they say in the 12 step fellowships, especially they say, look, you've got to change your playgrounds, your playmates and your playthings. If I, and, and they also say, if you sit in a barbershop long enough, you'll get a haircut. If yeah. you, if I, if I, if I go and sit with the same people, now, now I've done this. I've, I've personally done this in Glasgow. I, I went, I was clean about two years or it's maybe two and a half years. And I went back to help some of my friends. I went to, not, not, I never moved back to Glasgow, but I went to help them. And I found myself in a really tricky situation because I'd put myself into the lion's den again. And they were all like, now these guys have not changed. They're just exactly like they've always been. They're all involved in crime. They're all quite macho. They're all very much like, um, like don't show feelings, hard as nails sort of characters. I'm in there. I've been in a rehab. I've been going to these meetings. I've had therapy. I'm talking about my feelings all the time. And I go, not all the time, but I'm, 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 I've became much more open and receptive to looking at myself, self you know. And I go back into this uh, situation and they're shooting up heroin in this flat. I'm trying to take them to a meeting. And I found myself uh, almost compromised because I, I triggered off this uh, codependent because I, I felt, oh, they don't like me. They don't like me anymore. They don't, you know, I don't have the same kudos or respect that I had before because I'm not talking the same language, the same rhetoric, right? So I found myself and they were like sitting there and I says, come on, have a drink. And I'm like, no, I don't drink anymore because I'm in recovery and I'm like training to be a therapist. And and they were like, you're what? You're training to be a, you know, and it was like, they were just, and I, I found myself slipping and I had to get out. I mean, basically, you know, I had to get out. I had to just like, I, I says, listen guys, I'm just going to, it was two brothers. And I just says, listen guys, I'm going to shoot off. Uh, the whole thing that makes somebody like, uh, I guess, uh, determines success whether somebody will stay and remain drug-free and alcohol-free and in recovery is, is that they are changing as a person, right? The, the, the whole thing is, we always got to remember is the drugs and alcohol are only the symptom. Addiction, that's only the, out, that's the, look, that's the outward manifestation. That's the last thing that happens as I take the drink of the drug. But what goes on behind that and underneath the addiction is either trauma, or uh, distorted thinking a lot of the time, uh, looking for validation, uh, peer pressure. I mean, there's a whole set of circumstances, low self-esteem and oversensitivity. And th that's the thing. So we have to change. When you get clean and sober, you have to change and you have to build up your self-esteem. You, you have to identify. It's like going up a down escalator. If I keep, if I, if I just stand still, I'm going down, right? If I keep walking up that escalator, I'm, I'm, I just carry on the path, 
you know that's fantastic Mark. that's fantastic so, so just you know it lends itself to the adage that you know you are the sum total of your five closest friends uh, because whether you like it or not you, the community you 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 choose to and encompass yourself with or encircle yourself with does have influence on you and you know that 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 story you just told there is a fantastic uh, example of that from 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 a from a perspective of, of acceptance really because the group you, you hang around with you want to be accepted by and and you're right the normalization they've got this normalization of deviance and the more you yeah. go on with this group the, the, the norm the more you normalize deviance and and that occurs in everyone's life to a lesser or greater extent you know the normalization of deviancy you, you might start the car without your seatbelt on then actually you might yeah. think it's okay to check your text messages you've every so often you just don't wear your seatbelt or and and then you start checking your text messages more whilst you're driving and all the while you're on a, a spectrum and a journey of yeah. normalizing deviant behavior and, and that's that's a micro example and then you yeah. shift that to drugs and then you and, and you, you're right you, i'm just going to do this I'll actually just do this. My friends are doing this and you're normalizing deviance until it gets, like you said, to a place of, to a place where you don't, there's no return. And, and you, you write your dependence hits before you even, before you're even conscious of, of your dependence. Oh, completely. Right. And, and, and what's interesting, like Tolstoy talked about this and it's, and it becomes, um, it becomes when you're in the drug world, and look, and I know it's just about uh, about the whole crime. Before I, knew, I mean, crime and drug use. Before now, obviously, you're already committing a crime when you're you're taking the drugs because it's illegal. But you know, when you start selling drugs, what and you start getting involved in importing drugs, say for example, which I was involved with, is it's like uh, before you know it, I, before I knew it, I was involved with a whole group of guys who were involved in really serious sort of serious crime really in distribution. And at the beginning, I felt out my depth, completely out my depth, right? Like, what am I doing here? Like, how have I found myself in this circumstance? Because they had all guns and shotguns. And 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 then a, a year later, maybe even less, six months later, I was like talking the talk and just like, because we adapt all the time, we adapt to the environment. So I became like, like my environment, you know. So, so if I stop using drugs, I'm going to be influenced by that environment. So it's really important for me to seek out and find a new group of people, a new social group. And that's what often we do in 12-step groups is we find a whole group of other people who are similar to us, who are like-minded of addiction problems, but they're, they're doing different. Now, also there's this thing too is, you can channel the addictive energy into a positive thing. Look, lots of famous, look, I've got famous friends, I've got friends with Russell, Russell Brand, I've got friends with uh, uh, Davina McCall, Boy George, uh, Eric Clapton, all those guys I know, right? Now, the thing is, they've just channeled that energy into something productive. They've channeled into music or acting or, or comedy or whatever it is. So when you get clean and sober, you can channel it to, if you have goals, you set goals and you try and achieve those goals. And you, so that tenacity and resilience, because there's transferable skills that, you know, like when, you, when you're an addict, you've got to get up every day and get money. If you've got a heroin, you've got to 
think of ways to get the money every day. So there is a skill within that. There's a tenacity and resilience to go to any lens to get that drug. Now, I know it's deviant and I know it's criminal and I know it's, but, you know, if you can imagine if you channeled that, that same type of energy and that sort of diligence and tenacity into a business enterprise, you'd, you'd be successful. Yeah, indeed, indeed, oh. absolutely. And it's, that's a fantastic way to sort of pivot and, and shift, the, shift the focus and mindset, Mark, actually. And um, Mark, we've articulated the problem and, um, and we've also talked about the five-step journey. Um, can we just look at um, a few sort of treatment modalities for people? Who might yeah, not yeah. Is, is that okay? So you talked about yeah. this 12-step model. And uh, could you just unpack that? For- uh, okay, okay. 12-step model started just really briefly. In 1953, uh, Narcotics Anonymous was formed. 1935, uh, Alcoholics was formed. Now, basically, the whole... Uh, historically, it was set up. It was... a uh, 12 steps came from really temperance movements in, in the beginning. However, uh, it's not like that now. Later on, much later, there's a lot of atheists, agnostics uh, go to 12-step meetings. The 12 steps, I mean, the steps are basically, uh, one, we admitted we were powerless over our addiction. Our life, uh, our life became unmanageable. Two, we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, we made the decision to turn our will and our life over to God as we understood it. Now, God, for the atheists and agnostics, change the acronym and they say orderly. So they take out the God, the existential concept, and they say good orderly direction or group of drunks. Or so they just change the word. Um, Four, we made a search. Step four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, we admitted to God to ourselves and being the exact wrongs. Six, uh, we were entirely ready to have these defects of character removed. Seven, we humbly asked God to remove these shortcomings. Eight, we made a list of all people we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them. Nine, we made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Uh, Ten, we continued to take personal inventory and promptly admitted that we were wrong. Eleven, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. And twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to addicts and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, the the twelve steps are a... Maybe less so than in America. Uh, uh, most re- residential rehabs in America use the 12 steps. 85% of rehabs in America use the 12 steps as the core sort of philosophy. Obviously, they use they, they do use cognitive behavioral therapy as well, sometimes DBT, sometimes ACT is what we might talk about as well. But um, so they'll use other bits and pieces or different components or different therapies. Uh, the 12 steps uh, is, is free and there's, there's, there's lots of different 12-step groups. So for every type of addiction, you've got, a tw- you, you've got meetings for that. So for drug addicts, you've got Narcotics Anonymous. For marijuana, you've got Marijuana Anonymous. For cocaine, you've got Cocaine Anonymous. 
or alcohol, you've got alcoholics and us. For codependents, you've got codependents and us. For sex addicts, you've got sex addicts and us. For gamblers, you get so there's a whole and even now that they've started to see that gaming is a real problem with young people uh, and pornography as well, which is more sex addicts anonymous. But they they've got gamers anonymous in the UK only in the last few years, so it's a really good model. It it works for a group of people. I'm not saying it works for everybody, but it, it's um, it's a good model to and it's free and you create a support network and. Uh, and, and, and and now because of the Zoom, everything's went online. So the Zoom meetings, twenty four hours a day. One one of my uh, one of my observations, Mark, and I just wonder if you could speak to this is is that the, um, in these groups, AA, uh, NA, um, and, and and others. Um, what they celebrate is they celebrate successes. So you're if if you if you if you say you know you've been clean for a week or a couple of days or however small the success, it's yeah. celebrated in the group. Uh, but also there's transparency, modelled transparency. So other people will be really honest, and and then and then that breeds honesty. Honesty breeds honesty. But also th- they celebrate your successes, and that seems to be when I've observed it. A powerful effect because there's 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 you almost want that affirmation of success to be celebrated in the group and that's motivation in and of itself to to stay clean or be clean that you can report good news to the group. Does that is, is that is that is that something that that, yeah, that makes sense? Celebrate, to you? yeah, completely, completely. They celebrate sobriety time and they say, you know, like in every year. Look, I'm I'm now twenty four years, uh, two months. So every year in the 4th of December, I go on and I say, okay, it's my birthday. It's like, it's recognises your birthday, like, and, and say, oh, it's my birthday, I'm 24 years or 23 years, whatever it is. And everybody sort of cheers. And then, you know, now, there is a downside to this, right, as well. If you don't, Stacey, but, you, you know, it's the... Uh, they call it the abstinence violation effect. So when somebody breaks their abstinence, so say they're 20 years clean and then they relapse, they, the shame that they feel, now not necessarily, no one in the group, right, would go, oh, like, you know, don't be so, why are you so stupid? That would never happen, right? But the person themselves really feels their own shame because they're broke, the, the 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 continuity of abstinence, you know. So, but th- there is, and and look, there's no doubt about it. See, I, I go to meetings, and I um and I go to meetings in London, and I'm really fortunate. There's a great diversity in meetings in London. You you've got, you know, it's like, and there's there's meetings for every day. There's meetings. There's there's lesbian gay meetings. There's there's transgender meetings. There's uh, there's atheist meetings. There's there's you know, ethnic, there's just lots of different uh, single sex, male, female, uh, there's meetings with particular topics. Uh, so it, the, the whole thing uh, is about feeling not isolated anymore, being part of a community, getting a sponsor, working these steps, and by working the steps, so what you're trying to do is you're trying to, you're writing a list of the people you've harmed and you're trying to repair the relationships with family, with friends. So, so if I stole somebody's video, a recorder, or I stole, I've done something, 
And if it's safe for me to do so, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to harm them, I would go and I'd replace, I'd say, look, I'm really sorry. I remember I done this. I want to pay for the video. I want to pay some extra money as well, you know. So the whole idea is to free you from the shame, but also to rectify those relationships. And 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 a big part of it, obviously, is is the sort of is the is the self examination and looking at what is underneath. Why why do I act addictively? What is it I'm running away? Why is it so uncomfortable being me? What is it at the core that's going on that? I feel that I've got to numb all the time. I've got to distract myself. Mike, that's fantastic. And and it, it gives gives me a real insight into 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 not only the mindset but the but but the fruition of rehabilitation really. So just just for listeners, can we just quickly visit some of the some of the therapies such as CBT, DBT, right. uh, ACT. So cognitive behavioral therapy, how does it seek to address addiction? Cognitive behavioral therapy is like our thinking determines how we feel and therefore then that can determine how we're going to behave, right? So if if we've got cognitive distortions, right? As in and cognitive distortions are like things like black and white thinking or jumping to conclusions where we jump to conclusions about something, but we don't know the evidence we've already made up our mind before the conversation's even finished that this person wants to. Uh, leave me, or they wanted they wanted to hurt me somehow. There's a, there's other cognitive like uh, catastrophizing or filtering. They call this other thing called filtering, where we just only look at the negatives uh, or overgeneralizations. So there's a whole set of ways that we can react, which will then create certain feelings in us that then create certain behaviors. So they 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 look to 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 address that and change some of those things. But then what they try and do with CBT is you, you learn how to delay and distract uh, and respond to cravings. So when, when you're, um, they do this a lot when we're in rehab, they used to say, look, you're craving for the drink or the drug now, but the, the craving will only last a couple of minutes. So imagine, um, they, so they use sort of visual tools like, oh, imagine it's like, it's like a wave. It's, so the craving's the wave, but the wave's going to crash on the beach. So it'll get bigger and bigger, and then it'll crash. So just hold on for the next 10 minutes. Hold on for it. Just don't use for the next hour. You're not going to use. Now, what happens long-term with that is 24 years later, you're still not used. It's like, so you're delaying gratification. And, and then they'll, they'll teach you stuff like identifying dysfunctional ways of thinking, developing and practicing uh, how to be assertive. You know, how do you deal with when you've got to go back into social groups and you don't drink anymore, you get assertive around that and asking water, you know, like uh, a sort of language you use as well. And um, and then they'll do stuff like uh, how to face problems, how to deal with life, you know, situations. Because a lot of, a lot of, like, we've got, a, you know, in the UK also, we've got a very binge drinking culture, right, with alcohol. People use it to alleviate stress all the time here. And, you know, what we should, what would be a much better mechanism is if we've got any problems or stressful situations, we deal with that, we deal with that anxiety or fear and, and get solution focused around it and go, okay, look, I've got this going on. I want you to reach for the drink to take away these feelings. But really what I should do is I should focus on 
resolving the problem or, or, or certainly writing about the problem so that I can see it from a different perspective. So they use tools like that, uh, utilizing healthy support systems, uh, making lifestyle changes, using exercise. So CBT really works at like on a number of different levels. It's a, it's a really useful tool to deal in with the rationality that underlies addiction. Indeed, indeed. So, um, uh, Mark, could you speak to just a few of the other therapies, if indeed you use them, if you advocate for them? So, yeah. do you, do you, would you use dialectical behaviour uh, therapy? DBT is great as well, right? Because DBT, look, I'll tell you what is funny about these, these, all these the, uh, therapies: CBT, DBT, and and act. They're all they're all similar in some respects, right? It's just different language, but but. However, what I like about DBT uses influence. Now, DBT was used a lot for eating disorders and borderline personality disorder. A lot of, and it's not just women that have the eating disorders. Lots of men have eating disorders, and lots of men have borderline as well, personality disorder. So, so it was used as a therapy for that, and initially, but. What, what they practice is how they use the DBT, how you use DBT is how do I regulate my emotions? How do I, when I'm starting to feel stressed or I'm starting to feel really frightened or I'm feeling really angry, what tools am I going to implement to deal with that emotional state? And how do I, how do I sort of bring myself down if I'm really adrenalized? So a big part of it's on emotional regulation uh, a big part's also on mindfulness practice, like right here in the now, there's nothing to worry about. You, you know, lots of our fears, I mean, we're either in regret about the past or we're in fear about the future, right? But right this second, I mean, I could sit here right now and think, oh, you know, I probably got cancer or, or, I'm, going to, or I'm going to get cancer, but none of that's real, right? It's the Buddhists would say this all the time, isn't it? Like that, that the only thing that is real is right this second. Our conversation right now, that, that's all, the only reality that is. So they use mindfulness, they use uh, interpersonal effectiveness. So how to, how to deal with people and relationships and family and friends and how to create good communications with them, which is really important. It's a skill that we need, right? When And especially when you come from addiction, right? A lot of the relationships are just so broken, tarnished. Uh, and the last one is dis called distress tolerance. So how do we deal with distressful situations? That goes in with, I guess, the first one, emotional regulation. But distress tolerance is, is really important. It's a bit like stoicism, really, in a way. The, the old Stoics used to... Uh, used to say no matter how much pain, no matter how much emotional pain you feel, there's it's not going to kill you. If it if it was physically going to kill you, it's already going to it, you would already be dead. So that means that you can deal with more pain. You know, like the Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and all that were all they used to take on board like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato. And so some of that stuff, the, the stoic stuff is brilliant as a as a tool also for addiction. Um, yeah, so that's the, the, the DBT. I really recommend it. Uh, 
Did you want me to talk about ACT as well? Uh, just acceptance and commitment therapy, actually, because I, I think that could be a powerful tool. You've probably got more, well, way more of an insight than I do. But yeah, if you could talk about um, acceptance and commitment therapy, that would be fantastic. I, the acceptance and commitment therapy, I don't use much myself, but what I do know about it, because I know that it's used a lot in the drug field and it has been used a lot. And what the basic, the, 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 the central themes to it really are that <clears throat> as opposed to like the the if you think of DBT and you think of CBT, it, what, what the core principles of acceptance and commitment therapy is really is around cognitive diffusion, right? It's to try to detach from your inner experience by interacting or relating to them differently. So you're, so you're, whenever you've got any cognitive distortions, you're trying to see it from a different perspective. They're just using sort of different terminology the acceptance bit of it is a bit like the mindfulness part, right? Is the acceptance, allowing thoughts and feelings to arise without trying to change them, trying to change their form or frequency. So you're, so you're basically like, there is no good or bad, but thinking, well, it's Shakespeare as well, Hamlet. He said, uh, he was like, uh, uh, that, uh, that, uh, what is it? Um, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it it's mainly our judgment about the situation that creates whether it's bad or good. But if we can separate ourselves from the judgment and see, I think it was C.S. Lewis said, uh, he, he said there was, there's two goods. He said there was two goods. There's, there's good when something's good and there's complex. And complex as bad at the time. Now, this could be something like, you know, if you think of something like, uh, like a breakup from a marriage, right? And at the, the start, I think, God, this is really bad. But actually, six months later or a year later, I think, thank God I'm out of that marriage. That was a crazy marriage that I was in. Uh, so I, I think it goes back, this goes back to acceptance. That's a very, like, a, a sort of spiritual principle, really, is that, okay, I feel this. This is what I feel. I, I can, they may, I'm not going to try and change it this now, but I'll let myself feel. Um, I'm not going to change. They use all, obviously mindfulness as well. Um, they, they also, one of the other principles is self-understanding, letting go of, of concrete and inflexible thoughts and ideas about oneself and moving to understanding oneself within the context of, of the situation. So that I think that is 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 about the limited beliefs. You know, when we do like shoulds and must, I must be like this, or I should be this, a sort of inflexible stance. So we're open to change and we're open to see things from a different perspective. And one of the last principles is well, two last ones is values, learning what's most important to oneself, family, service, etc. So getting a value system, add look. When you're in the addiction, when people are in addictions and values are compromised all the time. So we're trying, it's really important to find out what our value system is when we're clean and have a set of values and principles to live your life by. Um, and then the last one is commit, committed action, effort to empower behavioral change, continuing on. So I think, yeah, I think the yeah, act is, is, is really useful. So, Mark, just to come in to land on the conversation, um, just mindful of time, could you just speak to the, so in, in the podcast, there's a real theme around self-care. 
And it seems, you know, that, that not only do we need to carry through these principles when we're at work, but very much when we're not at work. Um, could you just speak to the, the adage of self-care and to the adage of consistency? Because everything you've spoken about, Mark, over the past hour is not for just here and now is not for listening it's for future iterations of yourself and, and like you said it's 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 through the modulation of feeling because one of the most powerful things i've learned mark in in my 41 years is you're not how you feel you are not how you feel feelings are markers and you, you should pay attention to feeling but it's not you shouldn't identify with feeling and 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 as the sum total of who you are that because you, feelings Feelings will will be up and down and here and there and actually the the the, the mindful practitioner or the, the mindful person can transcend feelings and and can and and can and can apply a consistency of thought and principle beyond uh, and despite of despite feeling. Could you could you kind of sort of just speak to that as a, as a final question? I think definitely, look, the self-care thing is a massive part of the recovery process. And now, just, gen look, forget even just about addiction. I mean, generally, right, widespread society, uh, what and what, what you said was really absolutely true here, our, our feelings about our feelings. Because, look, I always go back to, look, our thoughts aren't facts, right? We have, like, we have tens of thousands, we have hundreds of thousands of thoughts a day. Uh, our feelings aren't truths. Our feelings are continually changing. They're like clouds in the sky. I can feel like I'm on this conversation now. I can feel quite passionate and elated. Two minutes from now, I can feel quite, oh, I've got to go to think I can feel down, you know. So, so we can't get too attached to our thoughts or feelings because we, and also we are continually changing as human beings. Like, we're developing or our sense of self and who we are is changing all the time as well, right? Dep depending on a number of different factors, environmental, people, situations, right? Self-care, uh, self right? Um, you know, look, I, I send a message to myself. If I, how I live my life is I'm, I'm, I'm disciplined, right? I get up in the morning, right? So I do, a set of routines every day that uh, give a clear indication to me that I care about me as a person, right? So I'll go and I'll, I'll go for a run, I'll do some exercise, I'll, I'll uh, have a coach. You know, there's certain things that I do that I, that I don't want to do, right? I never really want to do any of this because the part, there's another part of me that's quite lazy and undisciplined and doesn't want to feel any any un, uncomfortability. Uh, so so I'm very aware there's a part that just wants to eat pizza and just sit in front of Netflix and not really and not do any exercise, not engage with people, isolate. Now what I do know, mental health wise, right? What there's a certain set of actions that bring me closer to the man that I want to be, and there's a set of actions that will take me further away from it. And so, so if I want to be a man of integrity and character, look, this is goes back to Socrates. Look, Socrates, uh, they killed Socrates because he stood up, his value system was such that at the time, 
they they were saying, look, this is the way it is, and you can't be saying this stuff because this is really hypocritical with what we believe. So they, they forced him to have a cup of hemp. They says, look, this is the way it is. Either you denounce your value system or you drink this cup of hemlock. And as he put the cup of hemlock to his mouth, he says, he says, I know I've had a good life. <laughs> it was like old at that time for he was something, I don't know, I think he was 55 or something. So he was old in, in terms of then Rome for, for his age. But, but basically he said, well, I'm going to follow my value system. Now, how that relates to me is now is that not that I'm going to drink a cup of hemlock, but I I am um, is that the self-care thing, I know that it reinforces a message that I like myself and I care about myself. So if I eat certain foods, if I eat the right foods, I I mean it's not that I don't have treats, but I I'm I'm disciplined with myself. And I'm also very disciplined. So that's on a physical level. So I'll do actions on because there's different parts. Obviously, there's my emotional well-being, there's my mental well-being, and there's my, well, actually, there's emotional, mental, spiritual, and physical. So if I look after my physical well-being, then it's also, look, okay, so how do I look after my emotional well-being? Who do I, who do I surround myself with? Like, what kind of people do I surround myself with that enhances, that nurtures my emotional well-being? And who are the people that I avoid? I avoid aggressive and loud people, right? Because they're vexations to the spirit. They don't, they, uh, I, I don't need to be around people. Are. What do I do for my sort of mental recovery, for my mental well-being? What I realize is that if I stagnate and I'm not learning, that's another way. So another way that I self-care is by f- finding things that I'm curious about or hobbies or interests or things that I want to learn. And when I do that, that's like self-care. And also, and, and if I, without believing in something existential, but if I do meditation, there's, 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 like, there's factual information about the power of meditation, you know, where they see the effect on the brain and about, and, and bear in mind our brain plasticity, our brain's changing. We can, it can change continually. Like it's a three pound organ that, that there's so much can be, as in when you change certain neural pathways in the brain, what effect that has on the brain as a whole. So if I follow a sort of spiritual practice or a meditation practice, that has such a really a positive uh, effect on me. We don't behave in a manner we suppress like our feelings that we've got a, an ability to talk about what's going on for us to close friends or therapists or somebody that we can, you know, and, and that we don't compromise, we don't, um, basically compromise any of our values. Just try not to compromise our value system. So get into subjugate yourself in any way and people please and we, where we, we do things that we don't want to do that's harmful to ourselves. So we've got to be, a, I think in life, we've got to be assertive. You know, try and practice, not aggressive, not passive, but try and be assertive and create that, sort of robust boundaries. Yeah. That's fantastic, Mark. That's listen. That's fantastic because that's that, that, that that's the dichotomy we're after. We're, we're assertiveness, but not aggressiveness, not yeah. passivity. And 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 it's 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 always a dichotomous game, really, because like you said, it's it's around getting a healthy mix of of, of mindsets um, together, but also a healthy mix of people um, that can that can 
um, that can cause you to bring out the best in yourself. I, I, just to your point, actually, I heard a fantastic interview with Michael Phelps, the uh, multi-goal-winning um, um, Olympic Olympian, and he was just saying, "How do you treat your body? Do you treat it like a Ferrari, or do you, do you treat it like an old banger? You know, how do you? What's your approach to, to yourself? And and that that notion is towards you, the acceptance and and self self-care and self-love. You know, do you feed it a proper properly with? Do you treat it like a Ferrari? Do you feed it with with salad and nutrients and vitamins, or do you abuse it and or treat it, you know, with junk food and or drugs? And and it, you know, he said the mindset really is that you have to shift into into thinking you're a high performance vehicle. And and what are you what are you putting in? Because what you're putting in, you will get out both physically, spiritually, and mentally. And and my challenge, what I thought, gosh, that's such an insightful comment. Because if you can get up every morning and think, right, I'm 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 gonna treat my body and my mind like a Ferrari. Yeah. I and I'm gonna approach my diet, my friendship groups, my 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 intellectual stimulus, my conversations, like I'm a high performing yeah, sports yeah. car, um, and 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 then and on the basis of that, it, 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 that's that's a challenge every day to to sit, seek out the best food, the best people, the best uh, company, the best the best of everything because because you are you are a value. Your your body, your mind, your life is a is a value, and and pictorially that really worked. That really worked for me. I know, I know. And, and look, if you think of it just on, look, Public Health England used to always be talking about uh, what brings happiness uh, or what brings contentment in life. And the five things were uh, exercise, uh, always to be learning, right? So if you're, if you're exercising physically, exercising, learning for the brain, connection with others, right? The, the big one as well, connection. They've they done this thing called the Glasgow effect years ago. Why people in Glasgow were dying mortality rates were really low and they were saying it was because the men, especially among men in Glasgow, they were not connecting with other human beings. They were they were just isolating. So connecting with others, uh, altruism, right? So giving something as well, being kind. Now we know, uh, we know that's, that releases a lot of serotonin. When we're giving, we're doing something charitable, we're doing something kind for someone else, that releases the serotonin. And uh, and the and the fifth one was a uh, curiosity about life. So to be curious about life, to be have a zest for life, that you know, to be grateful, really, you know, and you know, whether it's doing a gratitude list in the morning and saying, like, really looking at, look, man, God, you know, I think I've got it, but I'm I'm so fortunate, you know, I've got good health, I've had a great life, of, you know, I've, you know, and and just seeing, you know. Uh, the good things in life. So those five things, I think, if we're doing that, so definitely mind, body, you know, and we're, if we're and that Ferrari, that's that's definitely uh, the way to go, really, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. From from an imagistic perspective, I think you know you just. Yeah. Having having that in your mind and, and sort of treating treating yourself as such, but absolutely everything you're saying, actually, Mark. Mark, just it's been just to say it's been fantastic talking to you, mate. Just just for for listeners that uh, that that have been with us for the conversation, how can people find you, Mark? Oh yeah, just go on to um, yeah. If you were want to see me as a therapist, um, I've got um, a website and it's Mark Dempster Counseling www.markdempstercounseling.com. 
And uh, if you want to find any of the books that I've wrote, just put my name, Mark Dempster, uh, and it's on Amazon, Nothing to Declare or The Ongoing Path. So you should find me no problem uh, on, on email. Uh, my email is mark at markdempstercounseling.com as well. Okay. No, that's, listen, that's fantastic. I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes, actually, Mark, for people just to, to link to you so they can find you uh, nice and quickly. But listen, I just want to just say thank you for me because your, insight, your, your insights are, are, are absolutely fantastic. And, and it's a lived journey, Mark. You know, you've yeah. really lived the journey and you can, you can tell from not only from your stories, but from your, your insights. So just, I, I just really want to extend my thanks to you. Oh, no, it's been great. I've enjoyed it, man. Let's, yeah, yeah. Thank you. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. 